0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We're broadcasting live from Witham's 7th Annual Globet Summit at Event Space 2nd in New York City. This year's program features business leaders that are exploring past lessons, current trends, and a future outlook for global business. Joining us right now are Jason Maria Rathanam, senior consultant at uh, consulting firm HLB Dahl, based in the Netherlands, but joining us on site here at the Witham uh, Global Summit. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. I know in your panel coming up, you're gonna be covering the manufacturing industry and how technology is impacting business. Give us your sense, as you talk to your clients around the world, you know, kind of what are the big challenges that they are facing in terms of adapting to
2: changes in technology? Great. Thanks, Paul. I'm so happy to be here in New York City. It's a beautiful day outside and I'm excited to talk about technology. I'm from Amsterdam and uh, we like to innovate, we like to change and so do our clients. I I keep saying this in uh, presentations all around the world that unless you're Coca-Cola or you're uh, Uh, an old-fashioned watchmaker, technology is going to impact you. It's going to change the way you do business, change the way you think, and we see that. um, I'll just pick up one simple topic like logistics. Logistics is totally being impacted by uh, technology. With AI, with robotics, with big data, um, it's all about how do I get my consumer, how do I get my products to my end consumers as quick as possible and as cheap as possible. Um, We see robotics taking over in logistics centrums, uh, 3D printing, what I would advise people, if you're listening, and if you're a business leader, just, just look at your, all of your processes and think how can technology impact me and what kind of investments I need to make in there.
1: Jason, do you feel like business leaders in general are aware of how radical the change is and how quickly they have to adapt?
2: No, no. And I'll be very direct with that. Uh, I think only 10% of the business community uh, understands the changes that are coming to place. Um, and those 10% are usually the big boys that are playing uh, the Googles of this world, the uh, Facebooks, but the mid-level, the small businesses.
1: Is there, is there a particular industry that's, that's particularly behind?
2: Um, what we would see is the retail market is still a bit big problem. I've seen, in, b- back home where I live, I live in a small town outside of Amsterdam, it's called Hofdorp. Uh, retail, r- brick and mortar stores are closing down by the day and yet you still see business owners saying, oh yeah, I've got a bit of cash lying around, so let's just go and open up another shop again. They make the same mistake again and again and again, and you gotta ask yourself, why do they do that? Why did they do that? Because they've looked at the past and they're making decisions based on the past, not of the future. They, they thought, oh, my! well, my dad did it, my, my, my uncle did it, so I should do it too. They're not learning for the future. So for some of these, you know, I get the big companies, the technology-oriented
0: companies, obviously they have a, a better familiarity with, with change and evolution. But when you go to see some of your smaller and mid-sized clients, How do you get them to really start
2: thinking about their business models and how they may need to adapt? Right. So what we do at at Fundal is we try to expose our clients to our larger clients, try to get them to think a bit differently, Uh, mandate almost that you have to read a book a day uh, or pick up once a week at least, uh, spend some sessions in the morning um, reading how... We've got a little program where we teach our uh, staff to actually learn code. Uh, to be more relatable to um, clients, um, getting them used to, familiar with um, uh, internet, websites, you'll be surprised, we've, we've still got clients that don't even have a website. And that, well, and, that yep. is, and that is a big problem. That's a problem. Well,
1: You know, when you say technology, it's a pretty broad sweep of things. Artificial intelligence, logistics, uh, while they can be paired together, are distinct and can be applied in different ways. So how do you go about determining, I mean, for the retailers, for example, What should they be doing? Because it's not just simply abandon brick and mortar. How should they be thinking in this technological
2: era? That's an excellent question. Um, What they should be looking at is how do I bring in AI, bring in big data into understanding who my clients are. So I'll tell you a little story of a client of mine. What they do is they um, insert small little chips in uh, in the hangers. And they know uh, how many times uh, a piece of clothing is taken off a hanger, and how many times it's put back. And, and that gives you a lot of information If uh, to, to give some pr- perspective. If, if I have a customer that comes in, or, or, or several customers that come in, and pick up the same uh, piece of clothing and then put it back, that tells you a lot about maybe I'm pricing it wrong, maybe it's the wrong color, maybe it's not. Uh, but something is good about it, but I don't know why my clients are not buying it. So you can... F- flow through from where it was picked up right to the uh, checkout counter and see whether there's a a good flow through there. Um, Apart from that, you can set up sensors all the way around your store. You can tell which part of my stores are underutilized. There's a lot of stuff you can do with AI. That sounds like it costs some money. How about some of these smaller and and mid-sized companies? Do they have the capital to make these investments in technology? Right, so we've got two parts of the market. One is a very conservative part, I can speak for Europe, A lot of our clients are sitting on money. They're sitting on money. They don't want to invest. They don't know what's coming up ahead. I heard uh, uh, recently that in the U.S. that there there is no such thing as a recession. I I Mm. heard that. But in Europe, we're still very conservative over that. We don't know what's coming around, so we'll let it sit. And um, to answer your question, uh, that costs a lot of money. Well, if you take it in small steps, baby steps, it shouldn't cost you a lot.
1: Jason amari thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Senior consultant at HLB Vandal, uh, which is based in Amsterdam, but is here with us uh, on site in New York City at Witham's seventh annual Global Summit. Thank you so much, so interesting. I love the idea of these sensors. Uh, I mean, I I love them and I also wonder what else you can do with all of that data? You know, I mean, that's the other issue, but at a certain point people have to be aware that we live in a technological era and people are looking to uh, use the facilities they have to the best advantage advantage uh, possible. We are broadcasting live from Witham's seventh annual global summit in New York City. A big topic of discussion is logistics and how technology is transforming uh, the way that goods move around the world. Joining us now, Michael Kaminsky, Chief Operating Officer at HMTX Industries, uh, which is a global LVT manufacturer. I had to look up what LVT was. I was, was going to ask
0: Michael what that is.
1: It's luxury vinyl tile. Because I actually Googled it, it's but. Lu- Luxury vinyl tile. look, oh, so okay, that you cool. can look at the different layers here. Ah. Uh, so Michael, uh, from a moving things around perspective, how crucial is that to what you do
3: every day? Well, it's the essence of, of what I do every day. We're, we sell over $700 million of product, LVT. Uh, most of it's manufactured, 95% of it is manufactured in China, and we sell it throughout the world, although about 80 plus percent is sold in the United States. So getting those goods, from China into the United States and then out into the distribution centers, then into the local community and then ultimately to customers' homes is, is all about logistics.
0: So, uh, as we've been talking a little bit about this China trade thing here and tariffs and all that kind of thing. And it's been the talk of the markets really for the last uh, six months or so. How has tariffs impacted your business?
3: Well, it's a significant issue. Uh, It takes up a huge amount of my time and senior executive uh, of the company time. Uh, The tariffs on our products, 10% tariffs started on September 24th, 2018. Uh, There were threats to go up to 25% that kept on happening and actually in June did uh, rise to 25%. So that's an enormous amount of money placed on our goods. It's it's the topic.
0: Who bears the cost of that? Do you pass that along to your customers, or do you as a company eat it, or is it a little bit of both?
3: Well, there's a certain gentleman who thinks the Chinese are paying for it. (laughs) Um, He's wrong. Right. Uh, The costs are paid by a variety of different people in the global supply chain. Uh, First and foremost, we've renegotiated uh, prices with our factories. Uh, We have eaten a percentage of the, the higher costs. We've passed on a percentage of those costs to our customers, and then our customers have passed on a percentage of those costs to the consumers. So uh, the truth of the matter is it's borne by many different people, and it hurts many different people throughout the chain.
1: Some people have said, well, uh, just change the supply chain. and When you talk about the factories uh, and sort of replacing them, et cetera, there, there's an issue with that. but. Logistically, how challenging would it be to uh, completely rejigger the supply chain?
3: I mean, simply put, it it couldn't be done. Uh, The investment in the factories, our manufacturing partners in Asia have invested tens and tens of millions of dollars into their facilities. In fact, over a hundred million dollars in certain instances. Uh, You just can't replicate that first from from a cost point of view. Uh, In fact, one of our biggest competitors over the last few years has invested almost a billion dollars to create a manufacturing facility in the United States that would be capable of producing the product that we make. And they've been unsuccessful. It's not a simple product to make. Um, And second of all, who would invest that kind of money unless you felt that you could make a good product and and get a good return on it? So um, our supply chain is embedded and it starts with our manufacturing facilities in China. And then across the board, each element of it has to react to it. You just can't pick up a factory and move it and, and start afresh.
0: What's your primary, um, I guess, transportation method or route of bringing the product from China to the U.S.? You just slap it on one of those big monster container ships and it goes to Long Beach or something like that?
3: Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we ship uh, approximately 2,000 containers a month. Almost all of that comes out of the Shanghai port. Starts actually our manufacturing partners are in Zhangjian, China, which is up the Yellow Yangtze River, a few hours from Shanghai. So they go from the manufacturing facility in Zhangzhigan on river boats down to the port of China, which is uh, Shanghai, which is by far the largest port in the world. 2000 containers a month get put on those very very large boats that you see out yep. there. Uh, some of them go to the port of Long Beach and Los Angeles, some come through the Panama Canal and go to uh, the port of Savannah, which is actually the third largest port for these kinds of containers in the, w- in the country. And then we have distribution facilities in Compton, California, in Rincon, Georgia, which is a little bit outside of Savannah, and from there we then ship them Uh, throughout the United States.
1: Just quickly here, I'm wondering whether there are new technologies that would facilitate some of the logistics around this that you're hesitant to invest in right now due to the uncertainties.
3: Well, you know, it's very, very hard in this uncertain environment to make long-term strategic decisions. We happen to be very lucky in the fact that we have a product that the consumer is clamoring for. And so we are selling, even in the face of these tariffs, we're doing very, very well. So we're not going to stop investing in our businesses uh, because of the uncertainty, but it, but it makes it more difficult. We've invested, uh, uh, two years ago we opened a new facility in outside of Savannah, yep. invested $11 million in uh, robotics and in a new facility. So we're doing that all the time.
0: Understood. Michael Kaminsky, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you stopping by here. Michael is the COO of HMTX Industries, uh, joining us here at the uh, Witham 7th Annual Global Summit at 2nd in New York City. uh, Very interesting logistic discussion.
1: And really important to get that view in terms of on the ground, how realistic it is to shift around your entire uh, supply chain.
0: Exactly. Not very easy. This is Bloomberg.
1: We are so lucky to have with us Tom Angel, who is the practice leader of Witham's financial services group. He has uh, decades of experience with p- uh, private equity and venture capital firms yep. in particular, which is incredibly topical. Uh, just this morning, Mark Wiseman of BlackRock said that almost half of BlackRock's institutional clients plan to increase their allocation to private equity asset classes. So, Tom, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Can you talk about that shift and sort of what you're seeing among your clients in terms of the just massive amount of money flooding into them? There businesses. is a lot of
4: capital coming into the market, and especially for the private equity uh, venture capital funds. Uh, so if you take a look at CalPERS, Texas t shirt Union, a lot of the pensions, state sovereign funds they are looking at ways to make returns because they have to pay their uh, retirees. And typically you're ch- trying to look at a 7 to 8% return depending on what, their, um, what the amount is that they need to return in order to be able to make those payments. So um, they can't make it in the market um, over a long period of time. But uh, I think in the last 20 years, uh, the private market has significantly outperformed the public market. And those studies are out, and so they're doing much more allocations to private, uh, private equity, venture capital, uh, real estate. Uh, could be debt funds. Uh, a lot of private debt funds that are out there, and in order to generate those returns that they need, they're allocating dollars to that. Since uh, the crisis back in 2008, 2009, you know, so we've been going almost 10, a little more years than that. You keep wondering, well, when is that going to stop? Because all that capital keeps coming in. How are they going to deploy it? But places like uh, CalPERS and and the others, they're not on a short-term window. So actually, some of the larger institutions like uh, Blackstone and uh, Carlyle, they're looking at doing 20-year funds instead of 10-year. typical private equity fund is 10-year because they have a longer-term horizon, and so they want to generate more returns, uh, higher returns over a longer period of time. So they're not worried about market dips or... Even even a recession, because at a recession point, they think they have an opportunity to buy in at a lower price and get better value. So Tom, one of the issues that
0: kind of, I, I think came to the market's head this year, which maybe it's too much money chasing too few deals in the venture community, and maybe even the private equity community. You know, maybe the greatest example of that would be WeWork, where in the venture private world, and you could even say Uber or Lyft, that you know, the valuations ever getting in the private market just were too high. Then mm-hmm. we, then they got really unmasked, I guess, when they came to the public markets. Are some are your clients worried about too much money tasting too few deals and driving
4: valuations to you know crazy levels? Yeah, you'll talk to a lot of our, our funds, and and they're looking at what they're paying in terms of maybe on the private equity side, in terms of um, EBITDA multiples. They're definitely going up, and you know they're looking at that at maybe being too frothy. But um, if you say to them, hey, are you worried you're going to be holding the bag when the recession turns around, that you have all these investments, and they have capital that they have to deploy that they've gotten in, and so they're looking at that downturn as a possible um, value buy at that point. So, you know, they may start to get hurt on some of these valuations, but they're going to make up on those valuations after the recession if you know one is coming. Um, So, I think the returns have been there, and they have continued to be there. Uh, So, on the venture side you know you brought up good points in terms of things that have gone but there's only 3800 public companies where 10 15 years ago there were 7000 right right there's there's really no place to put put the capital now those particular examples you brought up weren't profitable and nobody's worried about profitability they were more worried about growth on the private side once they become public Everybody's looking at, well, when is the profit going to turn around? I mean, if you look at what happened with Amazon years ago, right? similar type of thing. It took a while before they kind of hit their stride. So the question is, is Uber, is Lyft good public companies or good companies that'll eventually turn it around and they were in large growth mode and now they're going to try and become profitable? Uh, I think that's where it, the way you have to look at it as opposed to this is just a bad model and it's not working right now.
1: I think it's fascinating that uh, some private equity firms are moving to 20-year fund models. That's new, right? I mean, that w- does that have a precedent pre-crisis?
4: <laughs> no. So this is, is new because, uh, again, they have certain institutional investors that are looking more long-term. So if you got a 10-year fund and your investment period is your first three <laughs> or four years, um, then after that, you're kind of carrying it. So,
1: How much higher are some of the returns on, say, a 20-year fund versus a 10-year fund?
4: They've only been um, launched in the last few years. So um, we don't have statistics on that yet. Uh, but I would think that it, you have more of an opportunity of when to sell as opposed to you're coming to the end of the fund and now you have to liquidate those positions. So, um, And there are only four, you know, those larger institutional Uh, types of investors, retirement plans, state funds, um, that don't need the money, you know, immediately. If you're a high net worth individual and these are your investments, you want to get some cash back within 10 years. These more worried about future payments for all their pensioners over a period of time. Let's switch gears real quickly to
0: hedge funds. I saw just news, I think the last day or so, that Jeffrey Vinnick, the former star hedge fund manager of Fidelity Magellan, and who ran a long time hedge fund, actually closed shop because he couldn't raise funds is it that hard to raise money today
4: it's difficult especially on the hedge fund side the ETFs have really um, hurt the hedge fund industry because the fees are a lot less Um, so that's really brought it down I think I saw a week or so ago where um, dollars into ETFs first uh, for the first time exceeded dollars into hedge funds uh, or managed funds so there was more capital going to those uh, ETFs, and and you know you need the right manager. So it's not everybody that can um, come in there. And you know, back in the old days where everybody would set up a fund and invest in it, that's not happening anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I guess which shocked me is Jeff Vinnick. I yeah. mean, you don't
4: get a bigger name than well, that. Well, there's a lot, a a, large, a lot of uh, large, like Leon Cooperman yep. lo- closed his yep. fund, became yep. a family office. There were a lot, a lot of large institutional head funds that have basically shut up, shut, shut down shop. Gave all the money back, and now they have a uh, family office instead. Right, exactly. Uh, Let's see here.
0: We are here. We are broadcasting live from Witham's 7th Annual Global Summit uh, and 2nd in New York City. Uh, Tom Angel, practice leader, Witham's Financial Services Group. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We appreciate uh, your comments on the financial services industry. Have a great conference today. Thank you. Well, Twitter reported results last night, and the market did not like those results. The stock is trading off about 19% today. Stock is around $31 a share to get the latest on what happened there. Also, we me a little preview of Amazon. We welcome our good friend, Jitendra Waral. He's a senior internet analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he joins us from our San Francisco uh, studio. Jitendra, thank you so much for joining us. First, give us a sense of what happened at Twitter. They, ha- they were on a little bit of a run there. It looked like they were turning things around. What happened?
5: Yeah, you're right. It was it was a disappointing quarter. Twitter has just walked a few steps back in its recovery story here. I mean, first it was a quarter with uh, a, a lot of bugs in their mobile app promotions product that's sort of like impacting the ad targeting aspect and, and hence the revenue that's coming from that product. But the bigger concern here was the seasonality that they were experiencing uh, two months in the quarter. Uh, and it's interesting, the seasonality was around events. So basically, if there are a lot of events happening, there's content flowing around it, there are product launches happening, you know, your revenues go up, but if that doesn't happen, then suddenly you see a lull uh, that's happening. And this, this is a problem in terms of long-term uh, growth visibility because you know, if they're not able to maintain a steady stream of advertisers, uh, then it becomes difficult to see how they can, you know, continue to grow double-digit for years to come.
1: So, I'm struggling to understand why they're having difficulties with advertisers, given the fact that their user base continued to show uh, pretty strong growth, which actually had been a question for the company uh, a while back.
5: Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, they they continue to show progress on the user growth, but what happens is with with twitter you know they're going after these bigger brand uh, advertisers uh self-service a very small portion of the business not like uh, go, uh facebook or google or even snap for that matter so you know the sales force has to drive these advertising dollars and and sometimes because uh, these advertising dollars sort of budgets flow against a, a given event or a series of events or a product launch uh, you know they they tend to keep on Seeking new advertisers, if you may, versus having a self-service engine running like Facebook is. And, and that's why you see this lumpiness, and this lumpiness yep. is what, what worries us the most.
1: But there was also a problem with some bugs that it talked about. What, what was the issue there?
5: So the issue there uh, was basically the ad targeting of the mobile app promotions product, which is basically the you know, mobile app install ads and, and things like that. These are higher price ads. They were uh, facing issues with the data uh, that was uh, flowing through to the advertisers, there was some data that was not supposed to go, was going, some of it was not going, and and because that reduced the ad targeting, that had an impact on the spending uh, against uh, uh, that product, and that's why they saw saw a hit there. Now the expectation is this will continue uh, next quarter uh and into uh, next year as well but next year they have some uplift coming from the organic election year traffic they have japan olympics uh, uh coming as well so they, they have some offsets there coming in next year but what what investors are questioning right now is the longevity here in terms of you know this lumpiness in business uh, or events driven or hits driven seasonality that uh, that that the quarter short
0: so jitendra probably a maybe as recently as a year ago, there were real questions around this company. Could it be a long-term viable player in a digital advertising marketplace? Did it have big enough audience to compete with, you know, for ad dollars against the Facebooks and the, uh, of the world and the Snapchats and the, all, that, all that kind of thing? They seem to be on their way to answering that question in, in the affirmative, but did they take a big step back here?
5: Uh, they did, Paul. And I, and I think last, you're right, last couple of quarters, they have been showing progress towards that. In fact, the health initiative that they are spending uh, money on is actually paying off as we see you know, the DAU growth happening. But when it comes to uh, attracting advertisers longer term and scaling the business, you know they have to scale uh, the small business, small and medium business dependence more. They have to scale the self-serve advertising, the DR advertising more. So those are the aspects that are still in the uh, in the making, and 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 this quarter really puts them back in the show me mode uh, for to answer that long-term growth question.
1: So just shifting gears a little bit, we're expecting Amazon earnings after the bell. What are you looking for?
5: Costs uh, is going to be the biggest topic. Uh, last quarter, we saw uh, their marketing costs uh, skyrocketed as they spend money on uh, AWS marketing, Prime Video, Alexa, and likes of those. Uh, also, one day shipping, uh, which is giving a boost to revenue, so we anticipate that boost to happen uh, this quarter as well. Uh, but what would it cost is 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 the question and we saw them uh, come ahead a little bit than expectations uh, last quarter But really because it's so early with this one-day shipping We don't know exactly how many or how quickly a new products are being added to this platform and how much more it can really cost So this is a big question mark for Amazon from a profitability standpoint So from a revenue growth standpoint, I think they're doing well uh, One-day shipping is helping AWS growth will come in question again as it did last quarter but you know the size of the business 30 billion dollars plus business it has to be considered uh, when we look at these growth rates going forward but the focus for Amazon uh, I think this quarter and the quarters to come really is going to be cost.
1: Thank you so much for being with us, Jitendra Rawal, Senior Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from our San Francisco studios. Twitter shares down uh, more than 19% on those disappointing earnings. Still, though, uh, shares up more than 9% year-to-date. Amazon shares ahead of the uh, earnings release after the bell, uh, up just uh, 1.4%, so people uh, expecting some positive news there. We are broadcasting live from Witham's 7th Annual Global Summit in New York City. Looking at a mixed market with the Dow uh, down while the other broad indices are higher. Nasdaq up a tenth of a percent.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.